Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in chapter 7 of the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus receives an invitation to have dinner with a Pharisee and encounters an unlikely visitor. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our Journey in the Word. You know, or, or how about people are more are so concerned with analyzing the words that people use in their prayers? You know, one of the things I have learned over 19 years, maybe it's typical to this area, I don't know what it is, but when we do prayer meetings, people are afraid to pray. And one of the things I found in talking to people, part of the reason they're afraid of praying is because they're afraid they're not going to say the right things. And my question always is, well, who is it that you think is in this group that's judging you for your words? Tell me, because if they are, I want to have a chat with them, right? Point them out. Tell me. Drat on them. No, there's not. And the answer would be there's not. But we've grown up that way because people do that, right? People judge us. It's not eloquent enough. It doesn't sound churchy enough. It doesn't sound spiritual enough. You said something wrong. Think about the people that gather around Jesus. These were not educated men and women, right? He didn't care. He was looking at their hearts. And, and that we should be less concerned with what the world thinks of us and, and more concerned with what we really want to give to Jesus in our worship, you see. Now, look, I understand, you know, I understand that in our worship of the Lord, we never want to draw attention to ourselves. You know, and I'm, I'm always emphasize that to people. You know, I think it's one of the reasons that we are so balanced here in a lot of ways, you know. Uh, that, that, you know what, we just don't want to draw attention to ourselves. But there's a difference between worshiping him and drawing attention to yourselves. And you know the difference. I guarantee if you think about it, you know the difference. The person who stands up on their chair and starts howling in the middle of a service, they may be worshiping Jesus in their own heart, but every head in the place is looking at them, right? And so we know it's not appropriate. At the same time, because you want to raise your hands to the Lord, because you want to sing to the Lord, because you want to praise the Lord, that is not, that is not attention-seeking. That's to give to him. You should be less concerned with what people think of you. Be careful of this kind of self-regulating, self-righteous rulemaking. Be careful of it. While we most certainly should, again, not do things that draw attention to us, we want to give attention to Jesus. We also should not be constrained in our worship of him. Amen? And so this woman cares less about what was socially acceptable so far as the her worship of Jesus was concerned. She just wanted to honor him, as should we. But even more than just throwing aside social propriety, this woman's act with her hair had to do with something far deeper. You see, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 15 that a woman's hair was her glory. That a woman's hair is her glory. And, and, and so by the simple act of letting down her hair and using it to wipe the dirt from Jesus' feet and to anoint him with, with this oil, this was symbolically laying, she was symbolically laying down her own glory in order to do what? To glorify Jesus. That's worship. The willingness to lay down our own glory in order to glorify Jesus. That should be our heart. And here's the awesome thing about when we do that. When we set our glory aside for the sake of his, here's the awesome thing. When we do that like that woman is doing and we lay that down for him, we end up taking on the very same fragrance of the one that we're anointing and glorifying. Just as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. 
For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Where do you think that fragrance comes from? It comes from our worship of him. When we set ourselves aside and we begin to worship Jesus, we take on his fragrance and we then become that aromatic flavor to the world of Jesus, not of us, you see. That's the fragrance that we should desire for our lives. Not our own fragrance, but Jesus's. I'm not too fragrant (laughs) apart from Jesus. That's just the truth. And yet the only way that we're going to experience that fragrance is to let down our glory, just like this woman's letting down her hair, letting down our glory and to use it to simply anoint Jesus in our worship of him. And as we do that, the fragrance of his glory will naturally begin to replace our own. Amen. Third and finally, she kisses his feet. She kisses his feet. In the culture of that day, that would have been an act that reflected not just humility, but it would have been an act that recognized complete and total respect and adoration and submission. That's what that would have reflected. And in this setting, it would have been a highly unusual act. But, but, but it would have reflected both this woman's deep sense of gratitude and, and her worship of Jesus, the, the one to whom she was humbling herself and giving respect and adoration to and placing herself in submission to him. That's what she was saying by what she was doing in this. You know, someone wisely stated that worship always happens at the feet of Jesus. True worship always happens at the feet of Jesus, and there is no greater truth. We cannot worship Jesus by taking our stand beside him as, as some equal of sorts with Jesus. That's why I always hate that thing says, God is my co-pilot. No, he's not. He's the pilot, and I'm not, it's not, I'm not even sitting in the front seat. I'm sitting in the back and letting him drive the car, you know? He doesn't want an equal. He doesn't want a co-partner, though we are co-heirs with Christ in the internal inheritance that we receive. We're not co-with him in the sense of who he is. He's above us, and our worship is at his feet. It must always be found at his feet. And even though we cannot physically kiss his feet today, we most certainly can do so in our hearts when we, by our very attitudes, begin to reflect these things in our worship of him. It's one pastor whose name I don't know because it wasn't on the website where I saw his illustration of it. I just was searching for just someone who was talking about this. And the fact that he didn't even put his name on there probably tells me something about his worship of Jesus. He didn't want to be known. But here's what he said. He said, who is willing to kiss the feet of Jesus? Who will humble themselves at his feet and take their rightful place as a sinner? Who will bow their knee to Jesus Christ, their Lord, the Son of God from heaven? Who will manifest their love for Jesus because they are forgiven of all their sins? Who will confess Jesus before men and follow him in obedience to his commands? Not the proud and haughty, not the self-righteous sinner who see no need for Jesus, who think they will go to heaven because of their own righteousness despite the reality of their filthy rags, but only those who know and own their sinfulness and unworthiness, only those who recognize Jesus as the one who has power to forgive their sins, only those who have faith to believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. How is it with you this morning? Will you bend down and kiss the feet of Jesus? Wow, that's truth. Now, based on how Jesus would have been reclining at this table, as I described to you in the beginning, she would have been standing behind him and anointing his feet, which would have been extended behind him away from the table. And based on Jesus' positioning at the table reclining, he would not have been looking at her. 
he would have been looking across the table at Simon. But guess who Simon was seeing? looking straight at this woman, and that sets the stage for what we see in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, you know what he's saying? If he were really a prophet, like everybody's saying he is, he would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Yep, Simon is stunned by what he sees taking place. And, 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 and thoughts that he's thinking in this moment reveal stunning ignorance and stunning arrogance in the way he's relating to it all. First of all, he reveals his stunning ignorance of this woman's need and his stunning arrogance towards her, right? He saw this woman only in terms of who she was. A, a, a sinfully polluted and unclean woman, a woman whose touch no spiritually righteous person would ever allow regardless of how innocent or sincere it was. In his mind, her uncleanness would have, would have made a clean person unclean. And, and that's all that he saw. It's all he saw. It's all that mattered to him. You don't come in contact with the unclean of this world. That was his thinking. Secondly, he reveals his stunning ignorance of Jesus and his stunning arrogance towards him. He fails to see in Jesus what it is that this woman saw and was responding to. All he saw was a self-appointed false prophet who, if he were a true prophet, would have known what manner of woman this was who was touching him, and he never would have allowed it. And thus he arrogantly passed judgment on Jesus in this moment and said he could be disregarded spiritually because of what was taking place. But perceiving Simon's thoughts, which reflected that kind of ignorance and arrogance, Jesus now responds by saying in verse 40, and Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. Look, Jesus, knowing what was going on in Simon's mind, he now breaks the silence, and, and that silence was probably, you know, there's tension going on now, there's an awkwardness taking place, but he tells Simon that he has something to say to him. And, and Simon, in response, simply makes this remark back, teacher, say it. Now, again, from our reading of this statement, Simon's response might seem straightforward enough. Well, go ahead, speak your mind. But in reality, there's a nuance to his response that actually conveys a level of disrespect. You'll note that this offer to continue, Simon refers to Jesus as what? Teacher, right? Teacher. So what? Well, to, to many, Jesus was hailed as a great prophet of God, right? And, and Simon knew that. Verse 39 indicates that he knew that Jesus was being referred to by people as a great prophet, and prophets regarded, they were regarded more highly than teachers, than rabbis. And so you see, as a result of, of what Simon now sees happening with this woman, he passes judgment on Jesus in his own mind and heart, and he rules out such a reveled position, right? He rules out any possibility of Jesus being a prophet, and thus, as a result of those prejudices, he simply turns to Jesus and he relegates him to something lesser, to that of a teacher. Now, I understand that there were people who applied that term to Jesus, rabbi and teacher, but they didn't understand some of the things that he understands. He's doing this because he's saying, I'm not recognizing you as a prophet, so okay, teacher, say what it is that you have to say. Now, we might have missed this in our interpretation of the response, but I guarantee you this, Jesus 
did not miss it. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. And he goes on. He tells him in verse 41, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one he, whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Look, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to get the point that Jesus is making here. I mean, it's just really clear. The message is simple. It's very clear. Those who are forgiven great debts are more appreciative than those who are forgiven little. I promise you, if you one of you guys came up to me today and said, you know what, all your wife's educational bills that she has for her master's degrees, I'm going to pay that off for you today. I'd be indebted to you for a very long time, okay? Any takers? Let me know, okay? Not kidding, kidding, just kidding. But you, you see this account, though, Jesus draws in making this point. He, he draws on two kinds of people. And, and the first kind he draws on is the self-righteous who thought they needed little or no forgiveness. Simon, right? I got it all together. The Pharisees, I've got it all together. I don't need forgiveness. And, and then he draws the contrast to this humble and repentant person who knew that they needed God's forgiveness, this sinful woman. She knew that's what she needed. Jesus then makes the case for both by contrasting this sinful woman to her actions against Simon's, all of which have to do with things that were expected of a host in Jewish culture, right? He uses all the stuff that was expected but wasn't done. Simon didn't wash Jesus' feet when he entered. But this woman washed his feet with her tears and wiped them with her own hair. Simon didn't greet Jesus with a kiss of hospitality when he entered. But this woman had not ceased kissing Jesus' feet since he entered Simon's home. Simon didn't anoint him with oil, which would have been expected. But this sinful woman did not hesitate to use her own precious fragrance, her own dowry, if you will, to anoint Jesus' feet. The contrast is so glaringly evident that those who have been forgiven much love much, or at least knew in whom the greatest forgiveness would be found. She knew that the greatest forgiveness she could have would be found in Jesus. Now, keep in mind, this woman, this sinful woman is worshiping Jesus like this even before he grants her forgiveness, even before, right? The contrast is glaringly evident. And as Jesus makes this clear contrast, we can only begin to imagine what had to be going through Simon's mind. This com comparison in the message it contained must have struck a blow right between his eyes. One moment he was thinking about and passing judgment on, on how poor a prophet Jesus was because he couldn't even discern the sinfulness of this woman that he was allowing to touch him. And now here is Jesus making a teaching point on the private thoughts that were in Simon's own head and mind about it all, piercing his own soul like a flaming arrow. 
in this moment. This had to be blowing Simon away. Or maybe not. Or maybe not. You know, it's a reality that some people are simply too hard-hearted to receive the conviction from the Lord even when they hear it. Even a conviction that would lead them to salvation if they would let it. But we know from the scriptures that many did not let it. Well, we don't know what happened with Simon, but we do know what happened with this woman, right? Because of her simple faith and her trust in Jesus as the one who could forgive her of her great sins that even the Pharisees were were saying she couldn't basically be forgiven of, Jesus does forgive her. He does forgive her, and she finds the redemption that she so desperately needed in this life because of the simple faith that she, she heard the most impacting words ever spoken to her. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You can go in peace when your sins are forgiven, you see. There were also others at the table. And, 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 and they couldn't fully comprehend what was taking place. And, 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 and the comment like this, even though it was so clear, their, their response was that, who is this who can even forgive sins? Of course, we know primarily that they were trying to figure out how any man could relieve any one of their sins, as this was something which only God could do. This in itself tells us that they failed to fully realize who Jesus really was, God in the flesh. But I think that there's something even more, a secondary issue, but, but equally as confusing to them as it is to many religious people today. You see, the religious of that day had established a merit-based system for spirituality to which many people, possibly even the vast majority of people, could never measure up. They could never measure up to the expectation spiritually. And if you were going to measure up and be worthy of forgiveness and salvation, then you had to, at the very least, prove yourself through a complex system of rituals and works and demonstrated behaviors. And there is nothing about this woman that from their perspective ever, ever, did I emphasize that enough? Ever would have made her worthy of such forgiveness and spiritual redemption. Her sins were too deep. She was too depraved, too, too unspiritual to find release from sin, at least so far as they were concerned and determined her to be. And yet here's Jesus. He simply looks at her simple faith, right? He simply looks at her simple faith that she's demonstrating from her heart in this moment. And based on these things, he simply looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, I, as I conclude this morning, I just want to tell you, this, this passage has really spoken to me this week. And it's not like they don't from week to week. They do. But sometimes they just jump off the pages. The simplicity of this passage. And I think we could look at all, and as we have, all of the connotations affecting Simon and the practice and what was taking place. But at the heart of this, this passage, we can't get away from what Jesus just did with this woman and why. The simplicity of believing faith. I can't help but to be truly moved by, by the understanding of that, of, of the simplicity of forgiveness and salvation, a simplicity which sometimes we miss. You know, even, with, even within evangelical Christianity, we have made God's forgiveness and his salvation far more complicated than it really is. 
we've added caveats. We've added expectations that come from our own ideas about what demonstrates a life worthy of these things. And yet Jesus doesn't do this. Nor does the New Testament do this. Jesus' message is both simple and clear. You know, he says it in John 6.47. Can't be any clearer than this. John 6.47, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me and demonstrates it by the following things, no, he says, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Whoa. Whoa. There is nothing more plainly stated than this. And it's repeated over and over and over throughout the entire New Testament because it is the simple message of the gospel. It's the simple truth that's given to us. It was the clear and simple message that Paul and Silas gave to the Philippian jailer when he sincerely asked that question after the earthquake and the prison doors were open, right? And they're walking out. He serves, what must I do to be saved? And the answer to him didn't contain a lot of qualifying caveats and statements and expectations. They simply responded to him by saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. <clears throat> it's that same message that comes directly from the dialogue which Jesus had with this with Nicodemus. You know, we talked about him in the beginning a little bit. It's the same dialogue when, when he too is trying to understand forgiveness and salvation as Jesus so plainly and so simply told him in John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Simplicity. Now look, I know all of the arguments that are, that are raised against such a simplistic message. I've raised them at times myself. Be careful with this. Be careful because people can be self-deceived. We need to define what true spiritual belief really is. Well, I have no doubt that there is true belief and that it matters. Don't misperceive what I'm saying here this morning. There is true belief and it matters and, and people can. I can't contest that. People can deceive themselves spiritually and that there is a place for talking about what it means to truly believe. But in doing so, in doing so, we need to be very careful that we don't define this with all sorts of spiritual expectations that take away from the simple requirement and simple nature of believing faith. You know, I had a conversation with someone this week and uh, their dad had died and didn't know the status of the dad. Said, I've witnessed to him, I've shared with him as much as I could. And I said, then you've done your part. Leave it in the hands of the Lord. You don't know what the Lord will do with that. But I felt compelled to write to him about my interaction with my dad. I was young, I was 12 when my dad died of cancer. And uh, my dad was not a religious man, spiritual man by any means. I mean, they would send me off to church while they sat home and watched TV. And, you know, but, but my dad time to time would watch the Billy Graham Crusades back in the 60s. But I remember this. My dad was comatose the last three days of his life. And we were at the hospital on one of those days. In fact, it was the very last day before he died. And he woke up, not really awake, but he began to speak in, in his comatose state. And he began to recite the Lord's Prayer. And you know what? I don't know if my dad is saved. And I'm not standing here today to say, oh, that's indication my dad was saved. But I am saying that it could be an indicator of it. 
because the requirement is simple belief simple belief it's not all of the things we've placed on people it is simple belief yes simple belief in a man or a woman will manifest all kinds of other things as we grow in jesus as we walk out his commands in our life as we begin to pursue these things but but it's simple belief like this woman that saves a man or a woman. she had no opportunity to demonstrate anything other than to come and worship jesus my dad worshiped jesus that day we would do well to remember that while we are seemingly so concerned with qualifying people for redemption, and that's what we tend to do, we tend to look at redemption in a way where we're trying to qualify people for redemption. We got to be very careful that we don't inadvertently make our focus about disqualifying them, because maybe that's what we're doing more of, trying to find a reason why they're disqualified. That's what the Pharisees did. Jesus didn't do that. Yeah, the road is narrow and the, the way that leads to destruction is broad. We know that, right? But that road to destruction isn't based on all of the things that we tend to base it on, but it's based on the natural human tendency to disbelieve. To disbelieve. This woman understood this truth, but most of the table did not. But the question is, what do you believe? Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.